Our secular culture is steeped in skepticism towards the supernatural. Many people think that all religions are false or must be taken on faith because religions often come packaged with the belief in the miraculous. Christianity especially is based in the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but if miracles are not possible, then neither can Christianity be true. So in this episode, I am going to discuss how the arguments for God's existence we have already covered provide evidence that miracles are possible, and then I will explain how this helps us bridge the gap between the second and third steps in our apologetic method. Finally, I will explain and answer several objections to the possibility of miracles, so stick around and find out how it is rational to believe that miracles are possible. Welcome back everyone. In this video we are going to be talking about the possibility of miracles. Um, this is really important subject as we transition into the third step in our apologetic method and start thinking about uh, evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Uh, before we get to that though, it's really important to talk about whether miracles are uh, possible in the first place. Uh, because if they're not, then um, then maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead, regardless of how strong the historical evidence is. So this we're going to be talking about in this video. Um, if you are familiar with this series, I uh, usually begin each lecture, uh, each video, podcast episode, uh, with a Bible verse, just to get us kind of thinking about how some of the philosophy and the apologetics lines up with what the Bible is saying. At this point, we haven't uh, established or even argued that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, but I like to read some of these passages just to kind of get us in that mindset. Uh, and uh, for, this, uh, for this lecture, uh, the passage is John 20, verse 30 through 31. So it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we looked at this passage in the last video. Uh, it was in the last video we were finishing things up, talking about um, the arguments from reason, and I pulled out this passage early. So I, I didn't have much to say about the passage, uh, but if you, if you want to hear me talk about it, you can go back to that lecture. Um, I just thought this was a great passage for us moving into thinking about the possibility of miracles. Uh, John does say uh, that Jesus performed many miracles, and he performed so many that not even all of them are written down in the New Testament, so I always thought that was interesting. Now, I also start each lecture talk uh, with some uh, questions for reflection, and then I remind you what they are at the end. So these are just some questions that you can be uh, thinking about as we go through some of the more important points that I, that I touch on in these lectures. Also, if you want to interact, you can, uh, if you're watching this on a video, you can uh, maybe mention these in the comments, or uh, if you're listening to this on a podcast, you can send me an email if you have any questions or comments. Uh, our questions for reflection for this lecture are, 
the first one is, what is the most compelling reason or argument for believing the soul exists or that physicalism is false? Uh, that's a leftover question from uh, the last uh, couple videos, last few videos on the question of whether the soul exists. So let me know what you think about that. Second question is, do historians always throw out a story because it contains supernatural claims? Why not? Why or why not? Uh, the third question is, do miracles break natural laws? Why or why not? That's important. And then our last question is kind of long. It says, does David Hume's claim that it is always more rational to disbelieve a miracle claim include the assumption that God does not exist? What difference does God's existence make when considering the possibility of miracles? So again, that question is, does David Hume's claim that it is always more rational to disbelieve a miracle claim include the assumption that God does not exist? Okay, and we'll be talking about uh, these things as we go along. Uh, before we do, I just wanted to pause and take a second to remind everyone where we are at in our three-step apologetic method that uh, I talked about uh, in a handful of lectures ago. It's in our third lecture that talks about apologetic method, and in that lecture I talked about how um, the method that I'm teaching in this series is this what we call this three-step apologetic method, where if you're talking to someone about the truth of Christianity, you um, it's it's all on the basis of three major steps: the objectivity and knowability of truth, uh, God's existence, and Jesus' resurrection. You don't have to go through all three steps. Hopefully, if you are talking to somebody about the truth of Christianity, it's in a relational um, uh, context, and maybe you've been talking to them about it for a long time. Or if you're just talking to somebody on the street that you don't know, regardless, you are supposed to listen to the person, try to feel, try to get a feel for where they're at. If they believe in objective truth, you don't have to argue for it, right? If they already believe that God exists, uh, then you don't have to really worry about that step. You can just start with step three and talk about Jesus' resurrection. You don't have to go through the whole uh, process every time, uh, but uh, but yeah, um, you just meet them where they're at. Well, uh, one reason why uh, we think it's so important to let to um, argue that God exists before you start talking about the resurrection is because. God's existence has huge implications for whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, right? Um, if God exists, then miracles are possible. You know, in a lot of these videos, I if I'm talking about a specific topic, I will present an argument for it. Well, in this video, uh, in this lecture, I... Um, I'm not really going to give you an argument for the possibility of miracles. And the reason is, is because everything that we've already talked about pretty much serves as evidence that miracles are possible, right? Uh, and you can see it, especially in some of the things that we talked about. For example, when we looked at the Kalam argument, we showed that the cause of the universe has to be this immaterial, eternal, unimaginably powerful being uh, who is personal, right? And that's the cause of the universe. We, we looked at the arguments for fine-tuning and showed that uh, this being is, is willing that the universe be made and, and act in just the right way to make life possible. Well, here's the thing. If, if God created the universe from nothing and is sustaining it in existence right now, if you ask me, that's, that's a miracle in itself, and it's probably one of the most amazing miracles of all. I mean, Jesus' resurrection is up there. 
dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, but, you know, making a universe from nothing is pretty impressive. And I would say that is a miracle in itself. And because we've established that God is personal and, and some uh, a, a being that has the choice in creating or not, um, then there is nothing to say that if God makes a universe that God has to set up these unbreakable physical laws. Okay? Uh, really, all these arguments for God's existence not only show that God exists and created the world, but also created the world uh, through a choice. So there's nothing to say that God can't intervene in the world. Right? We've pretty much established that miracles are possible because uh, uh, creating the world from nothing is a miracle. And two, God is a personal being that has a choice in doing what he does. So uh, there's nothing to say that miracles aren't possible. And uh, whenever you start, so I just wanted to mention that really quickly. Um, so and I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you an argument for miracles because everything we've talked about, especially in the second step on God's existence, is uh, provides the arguments for the possibility of miracles. Um, now, before we move on, I do want to emphasize uh, how you should think about what a miracle is, okay? Because you know, somebody rising from the dead, obviously that kind of goes against the laws of nature in a way. Right, the laws of nature and everything we know about physical reality, we know that naturally people don't just rise from the dead. If you die, that's it; you're gone. Um, and that's the whole point. That's one. That's one of the reasons why the resurrection is so amazing, and why we think it's a miracle because uh, naturally people don't people don't come back from the dead. Uh, but even though it's kind of uh, what's happening in these miracles goes against what we know about reality. The thing is, um, it, it doesn't really make sense to say that a miracle is a, 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 is breaking a law of nature, right? Because if God has created these laws, these physical laws of nature, then there's nothing to say that God can't just um, basically bend the rules or, or do something in creation that goes against those laws. Uh, again, the main the main point is that there they don't there's nothing that we've looked at so far that entails that a law of nature has to be this unbreakable rule about reality. If God created them, God can change them. God can um, uh, God can bend the rules a little bit. Okay, so when we talk about miracles, uh, here's a, a a good definition that I've seen that I like, and it comes from. Norm Geisler and Frank Turek in their book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. They define a miracle as a special act of God that interrupts the normal course of events to confirm the word of God through a messenger of God. Okay, And we're going to be talking about miracles in this lecture, obviously, uh, but we don't think that God just willy-nilly uh, causes miracles to happen. We usually think it's for a specific purpose because he has a message for people. and And that's... That's one of the things, if you ever get into uh, philosophy of religion and start looking at um, uh, some of the ideas that monotheists have on why God made the world he did, one argument is that God made the world using these natural laws, uh, thinking of laws as regularities, because God is wanting to create a world with rational beings in it. 
And, and, and the world needs to make sense to rational beings, so God orders the world according to these, to these laws, to these regularities. Uh, also, it makes um, uh, natural laws make uh, morality possible. You know, if, if uh, nothing really makes sense in, in reality, then I can do almost anything I want, and the consequences really, there's not really going to be consequences of that, unless, uh, unlike in a world with, with regularities. Uh, where we do have consequences for our actions, and every time you act in a specific way, it'll have specific results. Uh, but anyways, one of the major arguments for why God uses uh, natural laws, uh, regularities, in in uh, shaping the universe is because um, if, if there were no physical laws and physical regularities to the way the world works, when God is trying, if God were to want to try to speak to his creatures, if if the uh, world wasn't orderly and, uh, you know, usually acts in a specific way, we couldn't tell the difference between God trying to talk to us and just a bunch of random events. Does that make sense? So if God made the world to act in this willy-nilly random way, if God was trying to speak to us, we wouldn't uh, be able to take, you know, we wouldn't be able to determine that God is trying to speak to us because it might just be another weird random thing that always happens. So we, we think it really makes a lot of sense as monotheists to believe that God, any world God would create, he's going he's gonna to create according to natural laws. So yeah, if God is going to create a world and God is going to want to talk to his creatures, um, it makes sense for God to set up the world according to these regularities. And, and that's so important. Whenever we say laws of nature, physical laws, we don't mean unbreakable rules because it makes sense. If God wants to talk to his creatures to set up regularities so the world works in a specific way, and then whenever he needs to intervene in creation to talk to his creatures or be among them or, or help them, uh, then whenever those things happen that don't usually happen, uh, we know it's God and not just a random occurrence. Okay. Uh, so, but, but it's, that's why it's so important to realize that the definition of a miracle is not a violation of a physical law. Okay. It's so important to remember that to not only think of physical laws as regularities, not, not set in stone, uh, unbreakable aspects of reality. And it's, and it's, and it's important to remember that a miracle is a special act of God that interrupts the normal course of events to confirm a word of God through a messenger of God. Okay. Um, and what I'm going to be doing in this lecture is look, so we're not looking at arguments for the possibility of miracles. We're mainly going to just be looking at objections and answering those. Before we do, though, I did want to stop and just make a, a general point about miracles in the Bible, okay? I think a lot of people think about the Bible, especially like the Old Testament, but the, the Bible in general. And they say, you know, it, it really does seem like uh, the Bible is just a the writings of a bunch of confused ancient peoples trying to explain the world around them and using God and angels and demons and all these miraculous things to explain uh, all the phenomena they're seeing around them because they didn't understand it because they didn't have science, okay? So I wanted to stop and um, make this point about the Bible, okay? The thing is, so the Bible does make a lot of claims to miracles happening in, in history, Right. And, and from what I what I've read and I get this um, this statistic from Geisler and Turek in, in their book, I don't have no faith to be an atheist. They say there are about 250 miracles recorded in the Bible. OK, so that sounds like a lot. Right. And usually when we think of the Bible, we do think of mainly these miraculous 
uh, or these stories with all these miraculous things happening in them. Uh, one thing that's important is to remember that the Bible itself was written over a 1,400-year period. Okay, uh, to make it simpler, we don't really, uh, I, I think to make this simpler, let's just, let's just not talk about or not include the time from Adam to Moses. But tradition holds uh, that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. Okay, and so it, it's not just Moses writing in... Um, it's not just Moses. It's not just the time from Moses writing those first books to us. Moses was also talking about events that happened before him, you know, including uh, Abraham, right? And Abraham is born around 2000 uh, BC, 1950 BC. Okay, so thinking about that, from 2000 to about AD. Uh, You've got about 2,000 years, from 2,000 to A.D. 33, uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, okay? Uh, well, then, of course, it would actually would be a little bit longer, right? Because then you've got the book of Acts uh, recording miracles happening after Jesus ascended to heaven. Um, so, but regardless, this is about a 2,000-year span that it talks about it, and it records 250 miracles, uh, that would come out to be about um, one miracle every eight years. And one miracle every eight years actually does sound like a lot. But I'd, I'd like to make a point here, though. Most of those 250 miracles come from just three major periods in the biblical story. Um, most of these 250 miracles happened at the time of Moses coming uh and then the stories with Moses in them, uh, the stories with Elijah and Elisha in them, and the stories with Jesus and the apostles. Okay, uh, and, and an interesting thing about this is that uh, some uh, theologians have pointed out that yes, most of the miracles happen around these three major periods: Mo Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus and apostles. And during these three times, um, it's uh, it, God is acting in history to. Um, free his people from something. In the time of Moses, it was to free his people from Egypt. In the time of Elijah and Elisha, uh, it was to free his people of idolatry. And in the time of Jesus and his apostles, it was to free his people uh, from sin. Uh, so just an interesting point. But um, uh, yeah, I'd just like to make this point that 250 miracles are recorded in the Bible. Most of those happen in, in these short times periods where Moses uh, was working with God to free the Israelites from Egypt. Elijah and Elisha were doing their ministries and Jesus and his apostles. And, you know, Jesus' ministry only lasted for three and a half years, uh, his earthly ministry. So when you think about it, that's actually, um, it's not that many miracles over a 2,000-year period. And and two, uh, they're all clustered in these in these things. So uh, so it, it really makes us take a step back and say, well, you know, that uh, seems like the uh, authors, you know, they're not trying to explain every single thing that happens in those 2,000 years using miracles. Um, it seems like when God has something important to do, that's whenever he starts interacting with human beings, and that's when you get all these miracle claims happening. Uh, you know, and, and then when you think about, you know, a lot of people say, well, why aren't miracles happening today? Well, Again, uh, you don't really see uh, 
the Bible says that a lot of miracles are about to happen uh, whenever Jesus comes back before the new heavens and new earth uh, occur. Uh, that's all, all the stuff written about in, in the book of Revelation. Um, so there are going to be more miracles. But at, at this point, you know, there's actually uh, many times where it's said that God wouldn't even like forget about whether miracles were happening. There's many times in the Bible or, or a few times at least uh, where God wouldn't even speak to uh, anybody. So, uh, you know, like there was um, the 400 year period. For example, there was the uh, period, the 400-year period after Joseph and the rest of the Jews moved to Egypt and, and Moses was born. That, that period where they were captive in Egypt, uh, apparently God wasn't talking to any, any of them. Uh, also, there was another 400-year period between Nehemiah being the governor of Jerusalem and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So uh, there were even times where God wouldn't speak to anybody. Um, and so maybe, you know, the time we're living in right now, it's just God doesn't have, especially uh, one thing that people point out is that God has given us the Bible, the Old and New Testament, and revealed Jesus Christ and what Christ will do at the end of days. So since God doesn't really have much, he doesn't have more anything more to reveal to us until Jesus comes back, then we don't really need him to be talking to us. So you're not going to be expecting uh, that many miracles today. Now, having said all this, don't be taking me to say that miracles don't happen today. I'm going to actually um, argue that, that they probably are happening today, uh, just not in a, in a really special way like they were during those three major periods. Uh, so don't take me to be saying that. I'm just saying that there's, there's reasons to, um, th there's good reasons to be thinking that, uh, to not be expecting a lot of miracles to be happening. Also, don't be taking me to say, be saying that uh, if a miracle was, wasn't reported in the Bible, uh, then it didn't happen, right? So just because they only reported about 250 miracles in that 2,000-year uh, period doesn't mean that those were the only miracles that happened. I'm just, I was just making that point about them not trying to explain everything through miracles. Uh, I'm not saying that if it, didn't, if it wasn't recorded in the Bible, it didn't happen, um, because right, I already showed everyone. I already showed you the passage where John says that Jesus performed many miracles that weren't written in the New Testament. So uh, it's okay. And also, of course, uh, if you read the Bible, you see God interacting with other people's groups, um, like whenever He talked to the Ninevites and other uh, non-Jewish people groups. We we assume that He was interacting with other people groups besides. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, besides Israel. Uh, so, but anyways, uh, one last point I wanted to make with, uh, with these ancient people and miracles is that a lot of times, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we think that just because these people didn't have uh, modern day science, then they didn't, they almost in a sense of the word, like, you know, whenever you try to say that they're just trying to explain everything they saw using miracle claims, it really starts to undermine their intelligence. Um, I've I've heard and, and read that uh, sci scientists believe that human beings today aren't like there's there's no evidence that we're more intelligent today than we have been in the past. The thing is, uh, so people in the past just didn't have as much scientific knowledge as we do. So they still had common sense. Right. And they had just as much common sense as we do today. So, uh, you know, so when we see them making these claims to miracles, 
for some reason we want to say, well, maybe they just they're just not that smart and they're just trying to explain everything with miracles. Uh, but the thing is, they had common sense. Uh, one example I like to point out is this Bible passage in Matthew four. If you look in Matthew uh, chapter four, verse twenty-four, this is an interesting passage, uh, interesting verse. It says, "Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted." those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. And of course, this is talking about Jesus. But notice here in this passage, the author, uh, Matthew, makes a distinction between the demon-possessed and what the translators translated uh, into epileptics. So I've, I've read that uh, they didn't actually have a word for epilepsy, the Greek word uh, literally means the people who shook, people with seizures. Uh, so, you know, in, in my translation, the, the translators just thought that that would make the most sense to us because that's pretty much what they're talking about. But, but notice this. They're making a distinction between demon-possessed people and epileptics. You know, the, the current thinking a lot of times in naturalistic circles is that People always tried to explain. They didn't understand uh, mental diseases, so they just tried to say, oh, well, that person has a demon. But just think about this, though. Demons, when they possess people, are said to give people, uh, you see this in the stories, it gives people uh, superhuman strength. They'll speak in different voices, maybe different languages. So if someone is, if someone uh, can pick up a a cart, you know, or or pick up a horse or break chains, you don't think that they're just, like, of course you're going to think they have a demon. Of course you're going to think there's something supernatural going on. That is a big difference, someone speaking in, in a different language and looking all vicious and lifting things they could never lift, as opposed to someone who's just shaking because they they're having seizures. There's a huge difference there, right? And, and common sense would tell you that that one is supernatural, the other's not. So, uh, you know, these ancient people aren't stupid. Especially whenever I try to, I try to think of that, um, that objection, you know, well, ancient people are just uh, trying to explain what they see using uh, miracles. But think about it. You know, they say that Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus really was uh, crucified, first whipped with barbs and, and just about dead before he got on the cross but then got on the cross and and endured that for so many hours so that he eventually suffocated or however else he he passed away and then they stab him in the side you know <laughs> he's obviously dead so whenever he comes back to life using saying that a, a god rose him from the dead is not just trying to explain some natural phenomena that you don't understand. He died. So we know that dead people don't come back. So, of course, they say it's a miracle. You know, I think about uh, the, the Jews going through the Red Sea. Moses lifts out his hands, and the, and the, the sea gets parted from, <laughs> from the very bottom of it so that they walk through on dry ground. If I saw that, do you think I'd be trying to explain that through natural phenomena? <laughs> like, that's just a—it would just obviously— be supernatural. So anyways, I think it's just important to realize that ancient peoples uh, weren't necessarily uh, stupid. So, okay. And like I said, in this lecture, I wanted to talk about objections uh, to the possibility of miracles. 
And what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to look at two major figures, uh, two major uh, names, and uh, the the two major people who have uh, argued against the possibility of miracles, uh, namely Baruch Spinoza and um, uh, David Hume. Okay. Now, before I do though, I did want to say just a little bit about uh, uh, objections to miracles. So you'll notice as we go along, uh, Baruch Spinoza is living in the 1600s. Um, David Hume is living in the 1700s. And really, it's this modern period where skepticism against miracles really kind of starts to take off. Um, you know, there's there's not all that many famous... Well, there are people in the Bible, obviously, uh, who are who are basically um, shown to be skeptical of miracles. So uh, it's not like like the skepticism towards miracles is new and, and novel to the to the modern period. But in in Western philosophical tradition, it definitely starts to take off after the Enlightenment. Uh, so yeah, so if if you're familiar, the Enlightenment in Europe is in the late seventeenth, early eighteenth centuries. Um, so especially there were influential modern thinkers like Isaac Newton, Rene Descartes, John Locke. Um, they they kind of took that old uh, Aristotelian scholastic way of thinking that thought that um, viewed the world in terms of formal causes and final causes. There was final causality. So the, there was a, a purpose basically for <clears throat> natural objects that we see in nature. A lot of these concepts like formal causality, final causality, really did point to the existence of God. But uh, these modern thinkers reject those notions of final and formal causality in, in, uh, in lieu of this more mechanical worldview uh, where you view the world in just terms of fundamental particles and how they interact according to these natural laws. And it really kind of uh, de-enchanted the view of the world and the you, people started to think of the world more like a machine than anything. <clears throat> now, of course, also uh, modern philosophy is uh, characterized with skeptical arguments. Um, the, the moderns were really uh, obsessed with determining, trying to come up with absolute knowledge. And uh, But one thing, the one of the first things they did was to start to doubt everything that was taught in the medieval period. And, a lot, and for what came from that doubt was a lot of arguments um, against uh, the knowability of truth and, and knowledge, even though the modern period uh, was obsessed with getting absolute knowledge. Though, So there were a lot of people that did, did believe you could have knowledge, but there are a lot of skeptical arguments coming out of this period. Anyways... Uh, let's look at Baruch Spinoza and, and kind of give you an idea of, of how some of these people argued against the possibility of miracles. So Baruch Spinoza is a Dutch Jewish philosopher, right? Um, he believed that there is only one substance in the world, which is God. And so that would classify him as a substance monist, uh, as if you are familiar with these metaphysical terms. Uh, technically, he... I think it's been debated, but I would uh, classify uh, Spinoza as a pantheist because he thinks everything is, there's only one substance in the world, and that is God. You know, that would entail that the world is God. So I would say that uh, Spinoza is a pantheist, but I think it's been debated. 
But anyways, uh, his objection to the possibility of miracles was based on this idea that a miracle is uh, a is a violation of natural laws. He didn't think that was possible. Uh, the reason is, is because he believed that the laws of nature flow from God's necessary and unchanging nature. Right? He kind of thought of the laws of nature like the angles or the sides of a triangle. Um, he argued that miracles are impossible because it would be like trying to change the sides uh, or the angle of a triangle, yet the triangle would still be a triangle. He basically believed that the laws of nature flow from, from God's nature. And trying to change them, like I said, would be like trying to change the angles of a triangle, even though it's still a triangle. So uh, it, since everything is God, and uh, then he concluded that the laws of nature are basically just emanations of, of who God is. So you can't break that, okay? I, I think, uh, or hopefully, um, you should already know why we would object to this and, and how we would answer Spinoza. You know, you can point to um, the the Kalam argument especially because the Kalam shows that the world had a beginning and if it had a beginning, it couldn't be the cause of itself. So the world can't be God. The The cause of all this can't be... Um, I'm sorry, the, the cause of the world, which we concluded was God, can't be the world because the world had a beginning in time, right? And also, everything I just said uh, at the beginning of this lecture, if God created the world from nothing and sustains it and is directing it to some purpose, there's nothing to say that God... There, there's no, uh, there's nothing in all that reasoning that, that necessarily entails that God can't act in the world uh, in ways that, that go against these regularities that he set up, right? So uh, we, we would uh, object to... Uh, Spinoza's objection on the basis of all the uh, all the cosmological arguments that we've talked about and everything that we know about God, right? But he is he is notable. Uh, but just just don't let anyone you know use Spinoza against you. If if they do, then maybe you want to start uh, talking about the Kalam argument or some other cosmological argument that shows that there needs to be a cause for the universe outside the universe. Uh, something that is not the universe, because the universe is contingent. Uh, the laws of nature themselves are contingent. We talked about all that. But um, anyways, oh, and, and if you are coming to this lecture um, and you haven't heard me talk about those, uh, go to wherever you're at, whether it's on the, a podcast website or on YouTube or some other site like that, and, and go look for those uh uh, cosmological arguments video, Kalam video, any of those videos, it'll it'll show you how we uh, talked about all this and how we concluded that God uh, is the creator of the world. Okay, uh, the next arguments and, and where we're going to spend most of our time, um, all these objections come from David Hume. Now, David Hume, if you've ever heard of him, I'm sure I've mentioned him before, is the uh, Scottish philosopher, historian, and economist. He's very well known for his skeptical arguments. Um, especially Hume argued, uh, he, this is a thing nowadays in, in philosophy and especially in uh, epistemology, the study of the theories of knowledge, uh, philosophers thinking about how we know things. Um, Hume pointed out that if you are using inductive reasoning, 
Uh, so if you are familiar with what I'm talking about, inductive reasoning is when you make particular observations, and then from those particular observations, you generalize into a, um, a really broad claim or like a universal claim. So here's an example is, is this inductive argument. Swan S1 is white. Swan S2 is white. Swan Sn is white. Therefore, all swans are white. So in this, arg in this argument, we're assuming that, you know, someone, we're saying... Uh, someone is studying swans and he or she's uh, conclusion after viewing so many, let's say thousands of swans, if they're all white, uh, the uh, person making this inductive argument is concluding that they're all white on the basis of thousands of observations that confirm that, that idea. Okay. Well, Hume pointed out that inductive reasoning can never be certain, he argued. Uh, if even if you've looked at what you think is every swan in the world, uh, Hume would still say that you can't ever be a hundred percent certain that all swans are white, even though you've maybe seen so many, or and maybe you think you've seen them all. He would argue that you need to travel throughout all times and places. Only then could you know with a hundred percent certainty, after viewing every single swan from all time and all places, uh, that all swans are white. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but you can't know that because you don't basically have a God's eye view of reality uh, and you don't have a, a, a time travel machine that can take you everywhere uh, uh, and every time. Well, uh, Hume used this, um, this problem of induction especially to shed doubt on cosmological reasoning. I, I think I mentioned this in our lecture uh, whenever I was talking about the Kalam argument. Uh, he argued that we can't know, for example, uh, that every time something begins to exist, it necessarily had a cause that, that caused it to exist. Because he argues that that is something that you can only determine using inductive reasoning. Every day of your life, you see things ex uh, begin to exist, and you always see that there was a cause for it. But he says, you can't be 100% certain of that unless you travel throughout all times and all spaces. Uh, witness everything that begins to exist only and only if you've done that and seen and confirmed that every time they began to exist uh, they had a cause only then can you be certain of that so he argued you know maybe something could come into existence without a cause and we just don't know that that's a possibility because we haven't seen it yet uh, so he argues against uh, cosmological arguments using this problem of induction well, uh, he wasn't entirely uh, unimpressed with inductive reasoning, though, okay? Because he, in his writings, you see that he says that the laws of nature are one of the most certain things that we, that we know of, okay? He's not saying that the problem of induction makes it so that we can't um, at least be uh, certain to a, a specific degree about things. And especially when you talk about the laws of nature, he believed that even though maybe we can't know for 100% certain that the laws of nature are going to be hold and, and that they're a thing, he still thought that the laws of nature were like the most, uh, uh, the most confirmed things that we know about reality. So they have a very high degree of probability. So high that... Um, if someone tells you that a miracle happened, then you should, in principle, disbelieve this person. So uh, if, if you can see my slide, I have an, uh, Hume's in-principle argument. So this is uh, 
an argument, a formulation of kind of what Hume was getting at. So the argument says, premise one, a miracle is a violation of nature. Two, but the laws of nature are built upon the highest degree of probability. Three, therefore, a wise person should never believe in miracles in principle. So yeah, he kind of made this in principle argument saying that since a miracle violates that law of nature and that you can know using inductive reasoning that the laws of nature are one of the most have the most highest probability out of anything that we know of, uh, then in principle you should disbelieve a miracle claim. Okay. Now let's talk about how we would answer that. So first and foremost, um, we, we've already said really, uh, and, and maybe you saw this in premise one and, and we're already noticing it, you don't, just because someone wants to define something a specific way doesn't mean you have to accept it. If someone came up to you and made this in principle argument to them, you could say, you know what, I actually agree with this argument because the way you define miracle, you're saying it's a violation of a law of nature and it makes it sound like laws of nature can't be broken. If that's what you think and that's how you define a miracle, then that is actually a good argument. There's nothing wrong with saying that because the thing is we don't hold to that. Uh, it's, it's not it's not correct thinking for a theist to hold to that idea of a miracle that it's a breaking of some unbreakable law, right? Uh, instead, I already showed you guys uh, a miracle. We're thinking that a miracle is a special act of God that interrupts the normal course of events to confirm the word of God through a messenger of God. So we just would object to this argument on the basis that that's not how we understand a miracle. So... Uh, since a miracle is just God acting in the world um, in a way that interrupts the course of normal, the normal course of events, uh, we would just say that premise one is false because that's not what a miracle is. So then, you know, if premise one is false, then the argument doesn't get by. Um, but also, I just wanted to reemphasize one more time that if you um, if you do find the Kalam argument compelling and other arguments like it. That is showing that God created the world and that God is a is a being with free will who freely chose to create the world. And if God has free will, then uh, why can't God? Uh, there, there's just really nothing that says that God has to. If God makes the world in a certain way, then there's no other way about it. You know, if God wants to set up the world in a certain way, that's fine. But there's nothing that says that God can't interact in that world uh, and maybe sometimes act against the regularities that he's set up. Uh, there's just nothing that says that. Okay. So that's how we'd object to uh, Hume's in-principle argument. But Hume also had what is called a in-fact argument. So he believes that he argues that people should just um, reject miracle claims in principle. But he also argued that in fact uh, miracle claims are just false. Okay, and he argued for this in in four major ways. Uh, the first way is he would say that no miracle in history is attested by a sufficient number of educated and honest men who are of such social standing that they would have a great deal to lose by lying. Okay. Second thing he argued for is that people crave the miraculous and will believe the most absurd stories. Three, miracles occur only among barbarous peoples. And four, miracles occur in all religions and thereby cancel each other out since they support contradictory doctrines. Well, let's talk about how we would answer these four uh, um, objections, uh, formulating his in-fact argument. Just really four different ways to argue the same thing, that, that uh, miracle claims are in fact not true. 
Um, so if you remember, I said the first one is that he argued that no miracle in history is attested by a sufficient number of educated and honest men who are of such social standing that they would have a great deal to lose by lying. Uh, I'm really surprised that he made this argument. I, I, I really don't know where he was <laughs> I don't know what he was getting at with this one. Um, I mean, I do know what he's getting at because I understand what that is saying. But it seems to me like he just didn't believe the New Testament, I guess, because the New Testament tells us that there were plenty of educated people. Uh, so, for one, Jesus, the New Testament says that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. Some of those people that do believe in him had a lot to lose, especially uh, what comes to my mind is the Apostle Paul, who was a highly educated uh, high-ranking Jew, uh, a zealous Jew in the in the Pharisaical uh, group, so he had a lot to lose by turning into a Christian. And in fact, we see that he did lose everything. He lost his life and um, had a, a rough go in between his conversion and and his martyrdom. Right? Like, a, I mean, he had a lot of good times with his Christian brothers and sisters, but he also got beat and whipped and shipwrecked and all sorts of things before he was imprisoned and martyred. So, but but that's just an example of someone who did have a lot to lose. And um, yeah, there's there's more than that. And and Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. So I just uh, I think it's interesting that uh, Hume would make this argument. He just must have believed that everything in the Bible just was a bunch of made up stuff or something. Because this would just be one example of uh, of time when a miracle was claimed to have happened in front of a lot of people, and and some of those people were highly educated. Now. Uh, Hume also said, if you remember, people crave the miraculous and believe the most absurd stories. And uh, that's fine, you know. Um, I, you don't even have to, to concede, uh, excuse me, you don't have to object to, uh, to this one, if you ask me. We can just concede this to Hume. People crave the miraculous and believe the most absurd stories. I don't doubt that. In fact, I think that that's true. Uh, we do crave the miraculous. That's why I think of the Marvel movies are making so much money. You know, we we crave that that person who has these supernatural abilities and can save us all. You know, it's just a, our human nature, um, and people will believe absurd stories. I, I remember I was talking to someone one time about Jesus' resurrection, and uh, and that person told me, you know. I mean, just think about David Koresh in Waco a number of years ago. People will just believe the most craziest things. And that's and I think that's just basically what Jesus was, was happening with Jesus. He's just saying all these crazy things. People just wanted to believe it. Well, here's the thing. Um, there's, I think, honestly, I th- now I wouldn't say that what that person said is true about Jesus. But what I will say is that people do believe crazy things, okay? But does this prove that miracles are incorrect? No, this just proves something about humans, right? Uh, the way we act and, and what our desires are. But just because I might be wrong sometimes doesn't necessarily mean I'm wrong every time, right? Uh, all this all this really does, this objection that people crave the miraculous and will believe absurd stories, all this proves is that we need to be careful when we are investigating whether a miracle happened or not, okay? And that's definitely what we'll be doing when we, um, uh, when we investigate whether we think Jesus rose from the dead, okay? Uh, going on to number three, uh, Hume um, emphasized that miracles occur only among barbarous peoples. 
I find this to be interesting. So, um, I don't know, kind of sounds anti-Semitic, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, you know, uh, the the Jewish people were civilized, uh, so also were the Romans. They weren't barbarians. Uh, you know, honestly, not that there's anything wrong with the barbarians. Uh, I, like I said, uh, human beings have had common sense f- from day one. So this, this objection just really... For one, it seems to be just going against what we've already seen uh, claimed in the Bible. But also, uh, it's just, this objection is in fact false. Um, I want to direct your attention to a two-volume set uh, of books titled Miracles, The Credibility of the New Testament Accounts by a scholar named Craig S. Keener. it's a two-volume set. The books aren't super thick, but they're they're not thin either. <laughs> but Craig Keener actually um, set out to write a book to kind of you know answer objections to people saying that miracles are impossible. Well, he ended up he ended up writing a two-volume set because during his research, he not only was um, writing the philosophical arguments to show that miracles are possible, but he also started talking to people and writing down all these miracle claims from today. Um, and if you go, if you read that book, there's some amazing things in there. Um, people getting x-rayed and it just, it like basically they're being proof that they broke something or something was wrong with them. And then they get miraculously healed uh, way earlier than, than if it was possible. And, uh, Craig just, excuse me. Yeah. Dr. Keener, um, records so many miracle stories and these aren't uh, among uneducated quote-unquote barbarous people so um it's just not true that miracles are only said to um happen by people who aren't educated okay and and again the bible itself is recording that educated people were arguing that uh, miracles were happening okay so um you could object to that in a number of ways, but that's that's what I like to emphasize. And then uh, lastly, let's just talk about this last point. Miracles occur in all religions and thereby cancel each other out since they support contradictory doctrines. I've heard this a lot, uh, especially on the Internet and, and talking to people. They say, well, there's miracle claims in all these religions. So am I supposed to sit there and investigate every single miracle claim in every single religion sounds like you would just you know have so much to do that you would never be able to know anything because you're sitting there trying to investigate all these miracle claims well there's a this kind of puts a overemphasis on miracles really this objection does uh miracles are, are are interesting things okay but just because something supernatural happens in the context of a religion doesn't necessarily mean that religion is true let's think about this uh, the thing is, why am I even talking about the possibility of miracles? I'm talking about it because it is the possibility of miracles is the basis is very is crucial. Uh, it's the foundation of believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, because Jesus Christ raising from the dead is a miracle. So you need to believe that miracles are possible. Okay, but Jesus Christ rising from the dead is the foundational belief to Christianity, is it not? Uh, as Christians, we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave, uh, thereby proving that um, everything he said was true and that his death really did pay for our, our sins. And that um, 
being with God, uh, being redeemed and being in, in God's presence is going to be possible again. Okay. Um, so Christianity is based in a miracle, but when you look at other religions, they're not, uh, Buddhism just says that, uh, you know, Buddha taught how to be enlightened. Uh, uh, Hinduism just teaches that you need to achieve moksha, but it doesn't even have a founding uh, person who, who founded it all. It was just kind of, uh, it came out of the um, Aryan, um, the Aryan civilization. Uh, but the, these religions and many other of the world religions aren't based in miracles. So just because a miracle happens in the context of that religion, if there's a miracle claim, it's not necessarily going to confirm that, that that religion is true. Does that make sense? Uh, so that's one thing you can you can emphasize is that, well, just because of that uh, some miracle may or may not have happened, why does it matter if it happened or not? Because that miracle isn't proving that that religion is true. You know, you can you can think of this like let's, let's say Christianity is true. Well, Christianity says that there's demons in the world and they want to deceive people because they work for Satan and Satan wants to deceive people, right? So if I was Satan, yeah, I would try to get my demons to make supernatural things to happen in the context of other religions, uh, in the hopes that they'll think that that somehow proves that that religion is true. Does that make sense? So just because a miracle happens doesn't necessarily mean that it proves that that religion is true. Uh, and you could you could turn the tables and say, well, you know, maybe Hinduism is true, and 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 there are these like uh, various gods, uh, and, you know, in some of the interpretations, Hinduism has these various gods, even though the the world is all all of the world is is God. There are these other gods, and maybe they have supernatural power. So, but and maybe they're trying to tell somebody something, but that person misinterprets it as a, a miracle for Christianity or something, right? So just because miracles happen. They don't prove that any one religion is true, so they're not the same as what I'm getting at. Whenever uh, Christians say that Jesus rose from the dead, this is something that you you need to investigate because that'll determine whether Christianity is true or not. But just because somebody, uh, some Buddhist or some Hindu says that a miracle happened, uh, or maybe some Christian says that a miracle happened, that someone's bones were healed, that's not going to prove that Christianity is true, Okay. And just because a Buddhist or a Hindu says that some miracle happened, that's not going to prove that those are true. Uh, it's only this claim that, that Jesus rose from the dead. That's a foundational miracle. So that was going to need to be something that you're going to want to look into. Okay. But but another thing, you can say, well, let's look, let's think about what these worldviews are saying about reality. And uh, and if we think that we can prove that what that religion is saying about reality is false, then that's going to be pretty bad for that religion and make it seem like that religion itself is false. So if that if that religion uh, entails some miracle claims, then we don't really need to worry about investigating investigating those because we have other beliefs of other reasons for believing that that religion is false. Does that make sense? So for example, if you remember when and when we went over the Kalam argument, we showed that if the Kalam is sound, that means that the universe began and that there is a cause for the universe that is. Uh, immaterial, infinite, unimaginably powerful, personal, all those things. If that is true, then that necessarily entails that atheism is false, pantheism is false, polytheism is false. Uh, all, all these numbers of worldviews, all of those would be false. So if a religion entails one of those views that we show to be false, then we would just basically believe that that religion itself is false, right? So, for example, if Hinduism says that God is the world, and, and we just use an argument that, that 
makes it seem uh, makes it seem to be a sound argument that the world began then we know that the world can't be god so we would basically just say well i just don't think hinduism is is true i think it's false right uh, so if hinduism has some miracle claims we just wouldn't need to investigate those because we think that hinduism is false to begin with okay so uh this is uh this this point from hume that miracles occur in all religions thereby canceling each other out just to just to reemphasize what I just said and to summarize, uh, not all miracle claims are the same, right? Some, If a miracle claim is supposed to be the basis of a religion, then I would definitely investigate that, right? But if it's just some kind of side thing that doesn't have that much, uh, uh, doesn't have big implications for that religion, then, you, I mean, why waste your time? Because it's, if it doesn't prove the religion to be true, then then it's, it may be it happened for, because another religion is true. Maybe it happened because that religion is true, but you don't know. Right. And and two, um, if you have other really other reasons to believe that a religion is false in the first place, then you don't need to go and um, look at that religion's uh, claims to miracles. Right. Because if you think it's false, then it doesn't matter if those uh, miracles happen or not. You don't have to waste your time. So um, I hope all this was helpful. Uh, again, I just want to emphasize one last time that if you find our arguments for God's existence compelling, uh, to, you find them to be sound and compelling, then you have no reason to believe that the laws of nature are these unbreakable rules about reality that God set out. If God created the world from nothing, then that establishes the possibility of miracles. God uh, does order the world, but he can order the world any way he wants. And if he wants to make it regular in a certain way, that doesn't necessarily mean that he can't interfere in that order. And every once in a while he can step down and uh, and and kind of act within these regularities in a way that helps us know that it's him speaking to us because that's not the way the world usually works, okay? And that's why we think miracles are, are possible in the first place because God exists and because God wants to talk to us. He set up the world in regular ways, but he needs to, uh, um, you know, go against those regularities every once in a while uh, to speak to us. So again, let's, let's, let's bring up these questions for reflection. Uh, hopefully you found some answers in this lecture. Uh, if not, let me know if you have any questions. Our first, uh, reflection question was, what is the most compelling reason or argument for believing the soul exists or that physicalism is false? Uh, you'll find the answer to those in the uh, last few lectures. The second one is, do historians always throw out a story because it contains supernatural claims? Why or why not? Uh, we're actually going to get to that maybe in the next one. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll reemphasize that in the next lecture. The third question is, do miracles break natural laws? Why or why not? Hopefully you should know that by now. And the fourth one is, does David Hume's claim that it is always more rational to disbelieve a miracle claim include the assumption that God does not exist? What difference does God's existence make when considering the possibility of miracles? That's one thing I actually forgot to mention is that... Um, David Hume, I just feel like he's he's kind of he wants to have his cake and eat it too. You know, he uses his uh, problem of induction to shed doubt on the uh, cosmological arguments on the very principle of causality itself. But I, honestly, I think that you know, if he wants to shed doubt on the principle of causality, he's kind of undermining science to begin with. I think that would prove too much. You'd you'd actually be you'd have to doubt every single thing you ever knew from the laws of nature. Uh, excuse me, from, from inductive reasoning. And that's why I don't really think it's fair for him to argue that we can't know that God exists because 
we can't use inductive reasoning to establish the law, the principle of causality. But then he goes on to say that, well, the laws of nature, even though they're, uh, we learn about them through inductive reasoning, they're almost, you know, they're as high as probabilities you can ever get. And to me, I just felt like he's really uh, kind of, his, his skeptical argument goes too far and he kind of selectively applies it to things. So, but anyways, um, those are our questions for reflecting. I'm going to leave you with another Frank Turk quote. Frank says in Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, he says, quote, If there is a God who created the universe, then he can do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside that universe. Okay? Like I always do, I wanted to just say a few words about the seminary that I went to. I went to Southern Evangel- Southern Evangelical Seminary and got a Master degree in apologetics and also PhD in philosophy of religion. If you enjoyed this video, uh, this podcast, you enjoyed the content, you want to dive deeper into these things, um, I highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College. They have anywhere they have uh, degree programs all the way from certificates to uh, bachelor's degrees to graduate degrees, where you can get a master degree, master divinity. Uh, you can go as far as getting a doctor in ministry or a PhD. So if you uh, like philosophy, you like apologetics, you like theology, you like the Bible, um, I highly recommend SES. They do have a big emphasis on apologetics, and that's one of the reasons why I loved it so much. Um, if you if you do like apologetics, you like this material, you want uh, a little extra, you can go to SES's website, hover over the media tab and you'll see a link that says why trust the god of the bible if you click on that it'll take you to a free resource about a 50 page uh, pdf book uh, titled why trust the god of the bible it's got some great apologetics material in there i also want to uh, as i do at the end of all these lectures uh, mention kingdom preparatory academy kingdom preparatory academy is a classical christian school in lubbock texas it's where I send my kids, and this is where I taught my apologetics course, where I got all this material from. So I highly recommend Kingdom Preparatory Academy. It is a pre-K through uh, 12th grade classical Christian school. Uh, they set it up in a university model, so um, the, the students go to school usually on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. actually makes it a little bit cheaper on you, and you don't even have to send your kids on, on Friday if you don't want to. You can just send them on Monday and Wednesday. Uh, but it is great that gets them ready for college. They, they, uh, they're not going to school all week long and then going to college and only going to school on Tuesday, Thursday or something like that. But also the, the, the academics are great there at Kingdom Prep. They, uh, they emphasize obviously the classical model and they teach your kids how to think, not what to think. So I, I just love the school. I highly recommend it if you're looking for a classical alternative to education in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, if you need more information, just go to kingdomprep.org or just do a Google search or some kind of other search for Kingdom Preparatory Academy. Uh, I, in the next lecture, we are going to move on uh, to talk about historical knowledge. So I hope to have you there. And thank you for listening. <laughs>